that exciting music, that means it's another exciting episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. Welcome to Christian Guys Zipping Through the News and Culture That Matters to You. I'm with my host here, Tim. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great, Jason. How are you? I'm doing swimmingly. Well, you can't beat swimmingly as we start our first July episode. We've just come off of the Independence Day holiday, and we're going to have a topic that's really appropriate while we celebrate our country, more revolving around the Supreme Court and its decision reflecting on religious liberty from a few weeks ago, uh, Fulton. And why don't you go ahead, Jason, just sort of remind us of what happened and then take us through it a bit more. It, it was a profound decision, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, 9-0, to zero, Tim, at the Supreme Court granting relief to Catholic social services, saying that they were discriminated against by the city of Philadelphia. To get all of the justices encompassing their different views united on one point, you really gotta you really gotta break the Constitution pretty bad to get everybody on the same page. All nine justices said you're subject to strict scrutiny under the Constitution and under this case law, and you broke it. So we're granting that judgment in favor of Catholic social services. So nine to zero is very profound. And one of the things I wanted to mention about that is that William Rehnquist had once said that in order for the court to maintain its credibility with the people, it wanted it needed to be seen as apolitical as humanly possible. So whenever they possibly can, they try to achieve unanimity. We know we're familiar with court decisions that are close, five to four in the Hobby Lobby decision. But whenever possible, uh, the court tries to be as unanimous as possible. So uh, in that sense, the Fulton decision was very narrow because what happened was the the court in the past had said you can you can survive strict scrutiny and an action of the government can be upheld if your action is generally applicable to everyone. Well, what they said was, this is not generally applicable to everyone because you're singling out um, Catholic, Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia, which was part of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And, because, and they, got the, they got the 9-0 to decision based on the fact that if uh, the city of Philadelphia is empowered to make exceptions to their anti-discrimination statutes, then it is not generally applicable. Because if you have, have the power to grant exceptions, it's not general anymore. It's very specific. Yes. So that was the basis of the 9-0 to zero decision. Uh, but it broke down in interesting ways uh, as to how different segments of the justices got there to the 9-0 to zero, nine to zero decision. So do you have a thought on that? Well, I, I think the, the comparison to some of the previous cases is interesting. So, for example, on on Masterpiece Cake Shop, it was Ginsburg and Sotomayor who had the dissent, and then the rest joined together. And it, to me, it's interesting because this decision feels like it actually has a broader implication for people of faith. It, the previous decision was primarily, as I understand it, focused on saying that states shouldn't be openly hostile to people of, of religious faith and their beliefs. But in this one, it, it seems somewhat broader, and it certainly opens up some d- items that we want to discuss in our next segment. It's really so encouraging, as you said, that the court seemed to try to present itself 
as a unified group. Obviously, there's a lot of, of d- disagreement in how they came about it, and so you have the three different opinions that are attached, all agreeing in the 9-0 to zero decision, and yet coming at it from different directions. All the same, it's just, to me, so encouraging that all of them at least agree that if a city like Philadelphia says, well, we have the right to make exceptions, but we don't want to because, in this case, allegedly the, the commissioner said that basically the Catholic Church was outdated and needed to get with the 21st century, or at least the Philadelphia Archdiocese was. That's really disturbing. Right. And, and that's the thing is they couldn't get agreement, uh, all the nine justices to agree that there was flagrant bias from the commissioner. But what was agreed was that they had discriminated against uh, against Catholic social services. So the issue was, well, if you can grant exceptions, why can't you grant a specific exception to Catholic social services? Because you've already conceded, the city had already conceded that the Catholic Church in Philadelphia, the Archdiocese of, of Philadelphia, has had a huge positive impact on the city for generations upon generations. So they're, they're saying... Okay, nowadays, they've been doing this for over 100 years. You can't grant an exception now. Um, And that didn't pass muster with any of the justices that they weren't able to grant this exception. And Alito noted in his concurrence that they have no willingness to grant an exception to, to Catholic social services. So that could play into future disputes of uh, bias against the archdiocese and against the Catholic Church. So it could be interesting on that point. Yeah. While we're just talking about the decision itself, I I think a couple of other things that strike me as interesting. One, I thought it was interesting that Roberts, as part of his, his majority opinion, lays out the um, the history of the foster care system and its its roots in people of faith. Uh, he notes both Jewish and Catholic efforts, for example, to establish foster care long before the government did. To me, it seems like the court is putting its finger on something that's really disturbing, which is a lot of the things that we enjoy were established because people felt a burden called from Scripture to do something. And we see these cases cropping up where now people are saying, well, yes, you had that burden. Yes, you were trying to do do this for society, or in fact, you did do this for society. However, now we don't want you to be a part of it anymore because you won't go along with us and throw away the very faith that caused you to care about these things and caused society to care about these things to begin with. To me, that's an interesting backdrop. It doesn't ultimately cause the case to hang on that, but it certainly does remind us that it's it's troubling when we see these issues crop up, and not just because I happen to be a Christian. It should trouble all of us that the very people that often help to bring about these services that are being fought over because they're important are being told you can't play anymore because your your faith is in the way of what we want to do. And And I appreciated Robert's bringing that up. Well, and there is a bit of chronological snobbery, if I can offer a, a, a little bit of an opinion here, that somehow we're modern people, postmodern people, and we're so much better than all of the people that lived in the past. And yet the past is people living 12 years ago, <laughs> you know, Former President Obama, when he's running for president in 08, uh, 
he would be he would be rendered out of bounds his views on religious liberty in 08 but we're so much better than even them you know uh and some some politicians you can you can show tape of the same politician arguing against themselves on this point so and you kind of go well do, do things really change that fast or are you just making up stuff as you go along uh so that'll be that'll be the strongest uh opinion that i offer personal opinion that i offer on the podcast tonight probably so well the, i think that's a relevant point certainly our i mean we've seen a lot of transformation in our society even in the last decade the problem is is it really the society changing or is it a certain very vocal segment of it. I think that's worth asking. And even if it's the broader society, this comes to really, I think the, the fine point of this case, which is if you have a system that's set up recognizing there may be need for exceptions and in the foster care system, obviously I, I think the people that put together the regulations in Philadelphia even recognized we need to have some room for discernment here. And yet you're not going to grant it over a religious issue. It's basically saying not only is society moving so quickly, but the very protections that we have in our constitution that were meant to protect people who might be out of step with the majority even need to need to be recognized. The point of having a, a bill of rights, including the free exercise clause, isn't to protect people that everybody agrees with because they don't really need protection. It's to protect the people that others find disagreeable for one reason or another. This this was, and this is important going forward, this was a First Amendment case. And, and to, to what you just said, this brings up Skokie versus Illinois, where, where those Nazis wanted to march in 1978. Uh, and I think nobody anywhere finds that speech agreeable that I know. But if we don't, if we don't stand up for that speech... Then what set what speech do do we stand up for as Americans who believe in individual liberty and freedom? Uh, and are you really going to compare? You know, you want to say to some people, are you really going to compare the archdiocese of Philadelphia to the Nazis? And when you put it that way, hopefully, some more people out in society will go, we're being a little bit extreme and ridiculous, and we need to find a middle ground here. So hopefully, middle ground can be found. And I think when we have a nine to zero decision, that's the basis. That's the start of finding some middle ground on those points. So uh, I find it very exciting and and hopefully very positive. And we'll we'll talk about uh, the religious liberty jurisprudence in our next segment. Really, this is an opportunity to pray for our nation, uh, to pray that people will stop and look at the fact that these justices who have very different opinions can come together and agree at least on a point because they're, they, they actually care about what the law says and not merely what they want it to say. And in that, there's a prayer for us in general. And speaking of prayer, our first sponsor tonight is Faith Tree's online community prayer walk which is coming up in just a couple of weeks, uh, actually less than that, is coming up on July 15th. It's zooming towards us, just like Zippy zooms through the news. And the Faith Tree Online Community Prayer Walk is something that is just so amazing. It's hard for me to get my mind around how it started as what was originally going to be a small, actual physical prayer walk around the campus of Lindenwood University, where 
right by where Faith Tree ministers. And it was planned right before COVID hit. And we had to cancel that because people weren't even allowed on the campus. And it certainly wasn't a time where we could congregate together. And to replace the canceled one, someone wrote me and said, well, why don't you do something, but show it online, show some pictures of places you can pray for. And that sort of snowballed. And soon we had a whole group of different people coming together and filming short devotionals on prayer and what scripture calls us to pray for and encouraging us to prayer. And we had online chat for prayer. And that first prayer walk went from something that maybe would have had a dozen people at it to an event that had over 600 people participate. And then we did two more prayer walks, and both of those also had at least as many people participate, each time with more countries involved. We had, I believe, five or six continents represented the last time we joined together in prayer, praying for our world, for our nations, for the churches, for our testimony to the world. It's a wonderful time to pray for all these heavy topics we're talking about and smaller topics, just the things that are private to us, but not small to us and not small to God. And so I would encourage you to stop by on the 15th, come to faithtreecf.org. That's faithtreecf.org. Anytime during the day, it'll air from 8 a.m. until at least 10 p.m. You can watch it. It goes in a loop and you watch part of the video and you can pray in the chat with other people. And you'll hear from great people, men and women of, of God, who who are looking at God's Word and feeling a call to pray on different subjects. In fact, Jason, I believe you're going to be sharing that day. Is that right? I was going to say, I think you know a guy that's contributed to this. I do indeed. It's going to be a wonderful thing, and it'll be full of joy as it usually is, and I'll take it in a strange direction that somehow the Lord uses. So uh, I'm happy to help out. Well, I do, I do appreciate your involvement in it and all those who are involved, if any of them are listening right now. Uh, please do become a part of that by joining us on the 15th, faithtreecf.org, the online community prayer walk. Jason, you've been thinking about this court decision and some of the places it's going to take us, you think, in the future. Why don't you go ahead and share a little bit more about that now? Yeah, I think it was really interesting as I dove into Alito's concurrence in the Fulton case that we were just talking about. He goes through a whole history of the free exercise jurisprudence, and he shows how there was a case that came before them, um, Employment Division versus Smith in 1990, um, and how basically what the court decided in 1990, for whatever reason, uh, according to Alito, is completely out of step with the prior jurisprudence that the Supreme Court laid down. The previous precedent had been laid down in 1963. It was Sherbert versus Verner in 1963. And actually, there was such alarm by the Congress when the Smith decision came out because they didn't know how to apply some of the things that were in the Smith decision, that Chuck Schumer, who is now the, the majority leader of the Senate, drafted a bill which became the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1990. And basically, functionally, it went back to the, to the jurisprudence of Sherbert versus Werner. So even Chuck Schumer said... You know, we need to go back to the older case in 63, which clarified some things and said that the government had to 
prove a much stronger, compelling interest to to sort of circumscri- circumscribe particular religious practices because he has uh, Orthodox Jewish citizens in his constituency. He has observant Muslims in his constituency. And so he was worried about about them. And according to the dictates of Employment Division versus Smith, uh, that general ac- applicability that we were talking about earlier would hit them, but not provide them any relief. When Alito mentioned this today in his concurrence, he said, look, the, the Congress attempting to provide relief for these citizens is good, but that could change. That's why a judicial remedy or taking us back to the Constitution would be better than, than a legislative remedy that could change uh, when when moods change. And and I, I think my bold prediction, I, I was going to make a bold prediction in this part. My bold prediction is that employment division versus Smith uh, is going to go down. I, I think what you can see when you read the different concurrences from the Fulton decision is that there is a groundswell uh, among six of the justices to say that Smith is not working. Smith is uh, harming religious people of various persuasions, not only Christians, um, and it's not workable. And Smith comes in a line with a decision called Lemon versus Kurtzman from 1971, where they established uh, this balancing test between the interests of religiously observant people and the interests of government. And Alito says, look, in the development of the free exercise clause, the founders had no notion of balancing different interests. They, The founders thought that the religious obligation and the religious motivation was more important than anything that they could impose as a government. So we'll see where that goes. I think... I think it's very positive for Christians and for all uh, religious people of goodwill. Yes, I, I totally agree, because when we look at what groups like Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia and other very similar groups across the nation, both Catholic and Protestant, there are people who, driven by their faith, are using their time to do good in society. And it's really a shame when society says... You're doing all these good things. You're you're helping in ways that would otherwise be overlooked. And certainly in the history of, of the United States, it's a picture of, in large part, Christians feeling the call of Scripture and seeking to do good in this country, even when Christians, at least of a very biblical mindset, were the minority, seeking to care for the poor and the needy, the widows and the orphans. If we always say that we have to balance like the the Lemon decision said, between government interests and religious interests, there's a real risk, I think, that you, you'll you have judges sway on the side of government and say, well, this interest is really important. It may seem urgent in the moment, but that's ignoring the overall good if we're purely weighing it from a secular standpoint, even. The overall good that these groups are doing. And, and I think that's so important because we tend to be very short-sighted and say, well, this thing that I'm holding on to is really important. And we're not looking at, well, what's going to happen to, say, the need for more foster homes? There's a shortage in Philadelphia, and Catholic Social Services can provide those homes and actually get kids into a good home. Is your pet peeve that you want to hold on to really more important than that? And is it worth violating people of goodwill and forcing them to either 
violate their conscience or not serve in a way they feel called to serve because you've decided that something else is more important. Right. And and what I want to emphasize to our discerning listeners and our smart listeners is that religious liberty concerns that are being expressed and brought to the Supreme Court cut across all sorts of ideological lines. There was a guy who was part of the Unitarian Universalist Church, and he was providing uh, food and water to immigrants that were crossing the southern border, and he ran afoul of a state law or something like that, and he got into all sorts of trouble. And and the, the court said, no, uh, this guy is doing what he feels religiously called to do, which is leave food and water for starving and 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 thirsting individuals, uh, whatever we think about crossing the border. Uh, this guy was acting according to his conscience, and the court said, you can't get in the way of this. You don't have a compelling interest to say that this guy serving humanity, being a good Samaritan, is somehow bad. So it'll, it'll go in some interesting directions, and what needs to happen and what probably will happen is something more, uh, more guidance from the court when they put the cases in line, when they get rid of the what they regard as bad precedent and put something else in there, or guidance as to what the government is allowed to do and not do, which they don't have right now. So I think that's what was missing from overturning Employment Division versus Smith this time, is a specific road, roadmap or agreement on how to proceed in that direction. And that's why they did not re- revisit Smith in in this case, in the Fulton case. Yeah, I do hope that they revisit it in the future. I think certainly all of us who seek to follow the scriptures, who can call ourselves Christians and want to be able to follow the teachings of Jesus, would have good reason to want to see Smith overturned, allowing people to act in good conscience. And people aren't always going to act rightly, and certainly there are going to be people that will be permitted to do things I disagree with. But in the end, I think until we come to a time when Jesus returns and he can implement a true, ultimately just, ultimately wonderful law, he can actually be our earthly king in the new heavens and new earth, the next best thing we can get is simply a a place where we can all practice our faith freely And then certainly as Christians, that gives us the opportunity to share the gospel and pray that more people would know the true king. We've always believed as Christians for a long time that we we didn't have to impose anything on anyone. Jesus is the truth and the truth will out. Right. So encouraging, encouraging news, I think, from the Supreme Court and we'll see what happens. I can't wait to hear more. our next topic today, we are going to talk about something that may seem like a, a, a big switch of topic, but I actually think there's a thread that ties it together with what we've been talking about. We're going to talk about some of the regulation that's being discussed at Congress on big tech. And probably when I think about it, I think you can talk to almost anyone today across the political spectrum, and they have some angst about big tech. You think back even 20 years and who would have even thought that this would be an issue? Or 30 years ago, there, were, you know, there were implications that IBM had too much power back in the 70s and 80s, for example. And of course, Apple made a, a famous commercial playing that up. Nonetheless, it seemed like, well, tech is sort of segmented to one part of life. And then over the last 
15, 20 years, tech has pervaded everything we do. And so it's not surprising that we're talking about regulation, but I, I covered this in a piece on Open for Business not too long ago, that this movement that we see right now, and particularly I focused on the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, is just incredibly bad policy, and it's going to cause all kinds of problems that I really think are unnecessary for solving the genuine issues about big tech. Right, and I think this is an ongoing um, ongoing concern about the the size and influence of various corporations, uh, and, and it's not new. The progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century was one where people were concerned about the influence of corporations and the influence of great amounts of wealth over the policy of the nation. So some of this is well-founded, and it's not new, but some of the bills that are in the Congress right now, I think, to your point, seem to be serving narrow political interests. Uh, short-term political interests um, and not necessarily forward-thinking and not necessarily neutral in a way that allows uh, fair communication and and access to resources that we would all value. Right. And I think that really is the problem. Uh, if you think about the trust-busting of a century or so ago, it was out of concern to ensure that people weren't being unduly restricted by these mammoth corporations that were essentially asserting a government-like power over people. And there's a question of what kind of power do companies like Apple and Amazon and Facebook and, and people don't seem to mention Microsoft much anymore, but Microsoft, what, what kind of power do these companies have? The big issue, and I think this is where it misunderstands how technology works, is it's, it divides up the realm of technology, or at least software and services, into two parts. You have platforms and you have apps, so to speak. You have the thing provided on the platform. And so if you're thinking about an iPhone or an iPad or an Android device, what you're thinking of is the difference between, quote-unquote, iOS or Android Mac OS or Windows, all those sorts of platforms. And then the software that sits on top of them, such as, say, your Facebook app, your Angry Birds app, all those sorts of things. And we've been seeing this litigate also, for example, in a court case, there's a really interesting court case going on between Apple and Epic Games right now that relates to this. But what it really drives down to is how much control should a company like Apple or Google have over what's installed on their platforms, and should they actually be able to compete in that? And this is an old question. As you mentioned, this has been going back for a ways. For example, the big antitrust suit against Microsoft in the 90s was over the question of should Microsoft be able to bundle the core utilities to access the internet, and especially a web browser, inside its operating system? Or was that an unfair abuse of power? It's a genuine question. And yet, you think about it 20 years later, would anyone really want a operating system, whether it's on your computer or your phone, that doesn't come with a web browser out of the box? Right. Nobody nobody wants to spend money to get all those separate things, you know. But how much proprietary control over all those things ought one company have? Right. Well, it's more than just money, though, I think. Most you think about how much lower the barrier for technology is now to use these things. If you buy a device and it doesn't have a way to access any kind of um, internet services out of the box, 
how do you install the stuff on it? And that's where it used to be. You had to hire someone if you weren't technologically savvy or go read really thick manuals and go buy physical software and install it on the device before it was really usable for the things you wanted to use it for. Where today we expect to open the box and it works. And I, I think that, yeah, that does cede some control, but it also gives a lot more people the freedom to use the devices. I think this is really where this act is so poorly written because it's written from the standpoint that there's this clear division between the platform and the things put on top of it. And and in a sense, I think you can kind of see that when you're talking about Facebook, there's the, the tools to publish stuff. And then there's the stuff that's published in a sense. That's maybe a little clearer, but when you're talking about, for example, your iPhone, what is part of the operating system and what is part of the the top layer that should maybe be removed from it? Is it, there's some easier ones, like maybe you should take off FaceTime and iMessage off of an iPhone and allow Facebook and um, Twitter and Signal and whoever else to compete and make their own case for their messaging platform. You can make that case, but then what do you do when you say, well, should it have a calculator? Should it have a web browser? Should it have an email client? Or again, if you rewind, it wasn't that long ago that not just the web browser, but the networking interface below it that allows the web browser to connect to the internet was considered an add-on app. Uh, That was back in the middle 90s. And so it wouldn't be very hard, and this is what I talk about in the piece, that Facebook, who would love to have control over your networking subsystem so that they could spy on you more, could say, hey, Apple's being unfair because they want a networking subsystem that doesn't allow us to provide, quote unquote, essential quality control. In other words, them being able to watch you and sell stuff to you. And so they need to allow us to have an equal space on the system to provide our networking subsystem. And and the very people that want protection under these bills would then be harmed. Right. And and I, to to your point that you made at the beginning of the segment, some of our politicians aren't forward thinking enough or separated enough from temporary political concerns to sort this out in a responsible way. Exactly. Um, and that's that's where it's going to get messy. And and if and if it's not done carefully and in consultation with people who actually know what's going on. Uh, it could get really, really bad for for customers and citizens. Yeah, I'd like to do a segment in a, a future episode and talk more about possible solutions. But I think maybe to bring this to a point, and this is where we were touching earlier on the religious freedom issues, that it's really easy when you're in the prevailing opinion to to want to restrict other people's freedom. And then when you find yourself on the wrong side of it, to say we need more freedom. And having a a longer view of history where you say, sometimes I'm going to be with the society, sometimes I'm going to be disagreeing with them, so it'd be better if we had more freedom in general so that everyone can practice their conscience. That that same sort of long view of history is what we need to have here, because I know people, certainly on, on the left, that are angry because they felt like it empowered President Trump too much to publish things or what have you. But then on the right, I know people that normally would like to have less government regulation, but are incredibly angry at big tech because they feel like it somehow undermined President Trump. And so they would like to do this just as much. And you have this unholy alliance between the populist left and right 
that they both want to kill big tech and they don't recognize how big tech actually serves in some senses that fourth estate that the media likes to claim it is. Uh, For example, Apple has done a lot to push back on unconstitutional encroachments by law enforcement and spying on people. And we need to talk about that more in the future. But if you break them up too much, then you only have one big organization in our society, and that's government. And I think ultimately, I'm not sure anyone's going to be totally happy with having Congress run our technology and Congress run our lives more. You look at the approval ratings, none of us really seem to be all that happy with Congress. So why do we want them to be the ones steering the ship, especially in this area where there is a great deal of competition? There's a thriving ecosystem, for example, on operating systems. We don't need the government to intervene when companies are on their own putting competitive pressures on each other to do better. Well, and to some extent, that will be a, a topic for the future with with big tech and if some sort of reasonable uh, consensus develops on how to handle publishing and communication and whatever else is tied up in that related to big tech. Yes, I, I think I just urge our listeners in closing for today to think in terms of don't think merely about who you feel like your political enemies are right now and how you can get them or get back at them. Think about the broader implications for the future and think about ultimately as Christians, what we should think about is what is truly just and right and what will allow us best to seek what is just and right in in the future. And I think we wouldn't be having this discussion on big tech if that were the guiding principle for those involved in it. So let's talk about that more in the future. We do actually need to turn to another topic. Let's go ahead and talk about our final sponsor tonight, which is faithtree.com, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Faithtree has been around serving the internet, providing access to news, weather, sports, and of course, important devotional content serving you for free for 20 years. And now with the new service Faithtree Grow, you can go on anytime during the week Go to grow.faithtree.com and find wonderful devotional material from local pastors and lay people sharing about God's Word. You can search it and find devotionals that are related to specific Bible passages. And you can even find some content uh, reflecting on faith and living out the Christian life from Open for Business, including from Jason and myself. So please do check out grow.faithtree.com. Heavens, Tim, you're almost as good at commercials as our buddy John Rooney. Well, hey, if I can even be in the shadow of John Rooney, I'd be really quite happy. True enough. Hey, Tim, you read the book of Job in a while? I did a few, few months ago. Good. Well, I want to tell you that I heard the most amazing sermon on the book of Job, and I thought we could conclude with that. Uh, one, of, one of the things that the preacher said, he said that the context of the book of Job was back when the people of God, the people of Israel, uh, believed that if somebody had an illness or a sickness, that that was directly caused by someone's sinfulness. And so we can kind of see that, you know, if you read the book of Job, you remember the first part where there's a conversation between God and Satan and Satan says, well, of course, Job seems righteous. You've given him everything. Uh, But if you took that stuff away, 
he wouldn't be so holy. And so God says, fine, do whatever you want, but you can't kill him. And Satan says, okay, and he, he loses his children. Uh, he loses all his stuff, you know, many cattle and riches and has all these horrible illnesses. And then the, th- the three free- friends come, you know, and they do the, r- the right thing for the first week and they don't say anything. And then basically they spend 37 chapters trying to tell Job that he's a sinner. And Job says, I am not. <laughs> and But then after a while, Job's strength wanes, you know. It wanes and his confidence wanes and he starts complaining to the Lord right there in 37. And then the Lord answers. And I just remember thinking, we don't actually get an answer to why. The question is, why do bad things happen to good people? And there's a couple of answers that we could give. One answer that I always liked, and I know you always liked, uh, because there aren't any good people. Um, But as a practical matter, that doesn't satisfy everyone. And so we all we all struggle with suffering. We've experienced it. We've wrestled with tragedy, you and I both. And why has God allowed this? And and actually, when you look at the book of Job, we don't get an answer to what happened to Job or why any of the things that he experienced happened. But he praises God anyway. He sings the praises of God anyway. He he confesses that he misspoke, you know, that he spoke foolishly in challenging the Lord. And then he's called to offer sacrifices for his foolish friends. Hmm. Tried to offer all these reasons why the whole thing was really Job's fault. And and the, the mindset of the people of Israel uh, back in the time when the book of Job was written, probably sometime in the exile or after it, uh, it was still present in the time of Jesus because, remember, in chapter 9 of John's gospel, when he heals the blind man, and the apostles said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither of them sinned. This happened so that the glory of God can be shown. I I just remember thinking, uh, this gives us an occasion to lament the struggles that we go through, uh, to to be sad over the suffering that we experience and the suffering of others that we come alongside and try to assist. But we won't always get an answer necessarily to why any of it is happening. But we will obtain the comfort of knowing God's goodness, not in spite of the suffering, but somehow through the suffering. Yes. And I I was deeply encouraged by that message. I think that is so important for us to remember because we, we do want answers, right? We want to know the cause and effect of what causes suffering, and that's where Job's friends get into so much trouble. And and to me, I, I find a great deal of hope in the book of Job in the fact that while Job does recognize he didn't understand the mystery of how the Lord works, that it is Job's friends that need actual sacrifices to happen to quench God's anger, because God God challenges Job, but he is really angry at Job's friends for trying to misrepresent him. And so that there, like you said, gives us opportunity for lament without explanation. And like you said, Job's friends at the beginning of the book get it right. They they do what we often struggle to do, which is simply mourn with someone, simply be with someone when they're going through something hard. And, and if we've experienced that, and I'm sure all of us have, we know how comforting it is simply to have someone along with us through the sorrow and through the challenge. And yet the point where it becomes less comforting is when inevitably, and we do this even though we know it, 
we fall into the, the trap of Job's friends and start trying to explain it. A lot of times that can point to, well, what did you do that caused this? But even if we're not doing that, we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God, understand the mysteries of God. What we really need to do is do like Job and say, we don't understand how God works. We don't understand all the pieces of his plan, but we do understand his call to love each other, to encourage each other. And that's not to say there aren't times that we aren't called to correct people when there's a clear wrong, but certainly when we're trying to pick up the puzzle pieces of why something bad happens, to simply start putting them together in a way that we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God and speak for him, more often than not, is not going to help, it's going to hurt. Yeah, I I think one of our one of our models in this is Jesus himself. How many times did Jesus lament? Yes. And Jesus wasn't necessarily rescued from his sorrow and certainly was not rescued from his sorrow on the cross. And yet, was there anyone who had more trust in God than our Lord? No. So, so if Jesus can lament, if Jesus can wonder at the mysteries of the Father, uh, then so can we. Exactly. And I found that very yeah. encouraging uh, to get another look at the book of Job and and to hear to hear the pastor say, why do bad things happen? I don't know. And that's okay in a certain sense. Yes, it, it doesn't speak anything about God's love. Certainly, if God the Father can allow that to happen to his only son, then it doesn't speak about God's love when it happens to us. It doesn't say that he doesn't love us or that he isn't there for us. But it does call us to to grasp onto him all the more truly and fully in this broken world where things like that happen. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Amen. Well, we anticipate the time when he returns, when we come to the end, and we rejoice instead. We come to the wedding feast, and we we celebrate, and we're in God's presence, and he wipes away our tears. And that's the kind of good end that we look forward to. Tonight, we come to the end of Zippy the Wonder's Snail, and hopefully we lament that we've run out of time, but there will always be a next time. We will be back in our next episode. In the meantime, hey, Jason, what should people do if they don't want to miss a single episode of Zippy? Well, they can go on their favorite uh, apps where they find their podcasts, and they can download all the episodes of Zippy the Wonder Snail, whether it be Spotify or one of the other ones. You're the tech guy. Help me out here. Well, they can do it on, on Apple's podcast store. They can do it on Amazon Music. They can go on to TuneIn. Any place, basically, that you could ever want to listen to a podcast, Zippy is zipping to you there, and you won't miss a single episode if you hit the subscribe button. And please, another thing you can do, one thing as we close, pass it on. Share about Zippy. If you're enjoying our commentary and it's helpful to you as we break down everything from Supreme Court cases to books of the Bible to the occasional bits of humor and culture, we sure would appreciate it if you would share this episode and other episodes on your social media accounts. Shoot an email to a friend and say, hey, listen to this podcast. Stick it on it in the car while you're driving around with somebody and say, you're going to listen to Zippy. However, whatever it takes, help us to get the word out. We're always grateful when you do. Yeah, even if you hate listen to us, we'll take that. Yeah, yeah. If you just want to sit there and argue with us, please do that. Jason, it's so great to be with you as always. Always a joy when we zip through news culture and the things that matter to our listeners. And we'll be back very soon. Bye.